Tonight's lecture will transport us into another world, a world of mighty erudition, literary sensitivity, lightning wit, and humor that I can only describe as Jewish. Our speaker is the author of seven books, with an eighth to appear in October. He has also written over 80 articles. His professional career began in Bible, and even then, he successfully navigated the fields of theology, historical criticism, Hebrew lexicography, literary criticism, and Jewish perspectives on Bible. Two of his books, Sinai and Zion, as well as Creation and the Persistence of Evil, have changed the understanding of biblical theology in light of history of religions, mythology, power dynamics, as well as, of course, ancient Near Eastern precedents. His later work challenges us to think about the textual basis of biblical interpretation, reinterpretation, and how such reinterpretation applies to both Jewish and Christian camps. Lately, he has produced an outstandingly sensitive commentary of Genesis, while at the same time extending his biblical interpretive trail to include Islam. Our speaker, Professor John Levinson, is a great scholar of our day. Most of all, perhaps, our speaker challenges us with humor. A good illustration happened in a non-professional setting in Chicago, and I really hope this is true. At the doctor's office, our speaker was a bit surprised to hear his doctor say that his weight was up. How do you know, asked our speaker. The doctor pulled out a chart, pointed to a discrepancy between the speaker's weight uh, relative to his height. Our speaker flashed back. No, doctor, you are not reading the chart correctly. For a person of my weight, I am short. <laughs> this is interpretive flair. I am very pleased to introduce my friend John Levinson, the Albert A. List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard Divinity School. Tonight's lecture, The Conversion of Abraham to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Thank you very much, uh, Randy, for that uh, little uh, generous introduction, but uh, I can use all the compliments I can get. Uh, so I very much appreciate that, and I very much appreciate the invitation that you and Dr. Wallach have extended and all the arrangements that have been made in connection with this uh, uh, talk. Uh, it was a little bit of a shock to get off the airplane here yesterday afternoon when I got on in Boston. It was 20 degrees, and there was a glaze of ice on everything on the railings on my uh, house when I went down to the cab, practically killing myself uh, to avoid uh, avoiding uh, slipping. And then I get out here, and it's almost 80 degrees. But I'm adjusting. I'm adjusting. I, 
I, I didn't bring my surfboard for two reasons. I wouldn't have time to use it, and I also don't have one. Uh, but if I had one, I wouldn't use it anyway, so who cares? Uh, but it's an honor to speak here, and I, I very much appreciate the uh, invitation. I'm glad you uh, stuck with that anecdote. That is a true story. I thought you were going to tell the story about the time I went to the dentist in Chicago, and uh, uh, he'd sent a bill, which I brought with me, and I hadn't paid the bill, because all the bill said on it was, Mrs., prophylaxis, $38. So I went there and I flung the bill down in the secretary's uh, lap. I said, I'm not paying this. He's, she said, well, why not? I said, listen, what the dentist does with my wife is his own business, but I'm not going to pay for the prophylaxis. There's, just, there's no way to get me to pay for the prophylaxis for her, for, uh, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, what was sad was that uh, she didn't have a great sense of humor. She proceeded to explain to me what dental prophylaxis is. Uh, anyway, that brings me to my subject, uh, Abraham. Uh, Abraham is often described as the uh, common father of three religions. Uh, and in uh, many circles, both learned and popular, uh, Abraham is often presented, rather homiletically, as an antidote to the divisions that exist amongst these three religions. We all have one common father we all call Abraham father. Abraham is our father in the faith, etc. Why should there be such divisions? Shouldn't we all just get along great? Uh, and of course, the assumption there, the assumption of the appeal to uh, Abraham as the common father of the three traditions, is that those three traditions really are just one religion. They're different denominations of one uh, religion. One common Abrahamic religion with three denominational variants, to use a term well known in American religion, American Protestant history, different denominations of what is essentially uh, the same faith. That seems to be the claim, but I think the claim is, and I hope to show tonight, uh, a bit uh, simplistic. Um, the, uh, the truth is that uh, we have no evidence there ever was what you might call an Abrahamic religion that there ever was a religion that centered only on the figure of Abraham, or a religion that one could infer from the actions of Abraham. That one could somehow say, well, imitate Abraham, bracket out or get rid of, divest yourself of everything post-Abrahamic in your tradition, in your religion, and practice the religion of Abraham. There is no such religion of Abraham. Put it differently, Abraham is known only through the scriptures and traditions of other religions. He's known uh, through the scriptures and traditions of Judaism, of Christianity, and of Islam. Uh, and I don't know myself how one would practice a purely Abrahamic uh, religion uh, based on those narratives about Abraham that you have in Genesis 12 through 25. Uh, a while back I had a three-hour uh, uh, lunch. That's not unusual. Uh, you know, I, I, am, I am too short for my weight. Uh, but what, the reason I bring that up is I had a three-hour lunch with a man who was going to write and since has written a book about uh, Abraham in, in which uh, he said, well, why don't we just all practice the religion of Abraham? Why don't we just all go back to our common father Abraham, exactly what I'm now criticizing. I said, okay, you know, I buy it. I'm converting. I'm practicing Abrahamic religion. Now I've got to go home and pass off my wife as my sister. He said, why is that? I said, well, I mean, that's one of the first things Abraham did. And uh, now, of course, there's this whole motif in biblical studies, happens three times in the book of Genesis, where a patriarch passes off his wife as his sister, 
And biblical scholars spend a great deal of time trying to untangle these stories and decide why there's this repetition and what's different each time and why you have a whole confusion of wife, sister. I've never understood why that's a problem. I come from West Virginia. <laughs> and, and in West Virginia, we really don't see a problem. I don't know of any biblical critic in the entire history of West Virginia who has ever raised that issue. Uh, and um, of course in West Virginia we go to family reunions looking for dates. Uh, but uh, that's the first thing I would do. Then I, you know, not too long afterwards, I, one thing I would do is I would uh, get together an army and, uh, and uh, uh, defend myself against four Mesopotamian kings uh, and defeat them. That's something that I would, that's one of the next things I would do. In fact, if I try to look at the various things Abraham did, almost sacrifice my son, I've been tempted. Uh, the, uh, but but uh, in other words, these are narratives, these are stories. They don't present themselves as didactic. They don't say, now do this because Abraham did it. There's only one exception. There's only one exception of a norm, and that norm is to circumcise the males on the eighth day of life. And interestingly enough, it's only Judaism that really follows that. Interestingly enough, the other two Abrahamic religions, Christianity and Islam, either don't have circumcision or don't insist on it on the eighth day. That's really the only norm that's specifically Abrahamic. You see, the underlying problem here is very simple. Uh, Abraham, as I say, is known uh, in the uh, Hebrew Bible uh, from Genesis 12 through 25. He's a pre-Mosaic figure. We're not talking about Sinai. The Exodus hasn't happened yet. We're not talking about the Revelation of Mount Sinai. We're not talking about the Torah. The main core of Jewish teaching is not primarily represented in Abraham's life, or, for that matter, uh, the other two uh, generations of patriarchs in the lives of Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson. Jacob marries two sisters, forbidden in the book of Leviticus, but the book of Leviticus hasn't happened yet in the book of uh, Genesis. In other words, when you uh, look at these three religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they, they uh, locate the center somewhere else. They don't locate the center in Abraham, even if Abraham is paradigmatic. If Abraham is some sense a founder or a hero of the faith, he's also a figure who lived before the faith, assumed its shape, its articulated shape, its characteristic form, before the characteristic norms came into existence. Put differently, if you want to talk about those three religions, I would think the first person you would go to would not be Abraham, it would be Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, respectively. Or if you want names of books rather than people, names of books or revelations rather than of individuals, it's the Torah. Torah meaning everything from Genesis through Deuteronomy, minimally. Uh, it's the Gospel, and it's the Quran. It's the, uh, the Muslim uh, revelation. So you have this general problem of a founder who did not practice the religion he is said to have founded. He may have practiced some elements of it, and, and the religion may wish to claim him as a founder, to appropriate him, but in fact, uh, Abraham is, is something uh, different. My subject tonight is how Abraham has been variously appropriated by those three traditions, mostly by Judaism and Christianity, given my own training and my relative uh, ignorance of Islam, though we will touch on Islam as well. Uh, everyone here should have the textual handout. Uh, and so we go first to text uh, one. As I mentioned a moment ago, the center of Judaism is not the book of Genesis. It's not pre-Sinai. It's the revelation at Sinai. 
It is, in classical rabbinic language, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. The Torah, with its hundreds of commandments, traditionally enumerated as 613 commandments, incumbent on the Jews. Now, you don't see Abraham observing these commandments in Genesis. You don't see Abraham keeping Shabbat, keeping the Sabbath. Very important law. In biblical law, violating it is a capital offense, but you don't see, uh, you don't see Abraham keeping uh, the Sabbath. No mention of the Sabbath in Genesis. The word Shabbat does not occur in Genesis. Uh, the, um, you don't see Abraham observing the uh, dietary laws. In fact, in Genesis 18, he seems to uh, uh, violate the separation of meat and milk, according to uh, one plain sense reading. Uh, certain characteristic aspects of Judaism you just don't see in Abraham. So uh, how is Abraham to relate? How are we to relate Abraham to this Torah-centered religion that we call Judaism? Well, we have a verse in Genesis of which the rabbis make a great deal. And that verse is text 1 from Genesis 26. Abraham has died, and here is uh, God uh, reiterating the promise to Abraham to his son and heir, Isaac. He says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, which he had also said to Abraham, and give to your descendants all these lands, which he had also said to Abraham, so that all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your offspring, which he had also said to Abraham. All that is just reiterating. But look at verse 5. Inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my teachings, Torot, my Torahs, now, verse 5, here on text 1, Genesis 26, 5, is very anomalous. It's very anomalous. All right, Abraham obeyed God. One could see some uh, reason to say that. Kept my charge. Is, it's hard to know what that refers to. But that he kept commandments, laws, and teachings. What are the commandments and laws and teachings that Abraham had? The text itself, verse 5, looks rather atypical in the book of Genesis, which doesn't talk about commandments, laws, and teachings. It looks like something better known from a book like Deuteronomy, which talks in great length about uh, uh, such things. And uh, that's why I give you text two to show you how Deuteronomic in diction, in language, and perhaps in origin is text uh, is uh, uh, verse 5 of text 1. So look at text 2, Deuteronomy 11.1. 1. Love therefore the Lord your God and keep his charge, his laws, his rules, and his commandments. It's a very substantial overlap, a long string of nouns that indicate the commandments, the norms, or whatever uh, that one is to keep. One gets the feeling that maybe Genesis 26.5 is the first glimmer of something that we'll see in a moment becomes very prominent in Judaism. The first glimmer of the idea that Abraham was a Torah-observant, law-observant, commandment-observant Jew, which one wouldn't think otherwise, uh, but one does find in Genesis 26.5, at least hinted at in that verse. When you get a little later, when you get to the book of Jubilees, which was written uh, by uh, Jews in the early 2nd century, mid-2nd century BCE, uh, you find this more developed. Jubilees is sometimes said to be a sectarian work. Uh, you know, uh, there were many sects in uh, Second Temple Judaism. In fact, I always tell my classes, one of the major differences between uh, Judaism in the Second Temple period and Judaism today is that in the Second Temple uh, period, the Jews had far more sects. Uh, Genesis, uh, Jubilees 12 is not a book that has been... Uh, 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 absorbed into the Jewish canon. 
Jews don't know of this book. It's not a canonical authoritative book. It's not absorbed in the rabbinic tradition. It doesn't enter into the, the, uh, the uh, stream of Jewish tradition. But it's an important book for understanding Judaism as it existed around the second century uh, BCE. And here you've got the angel of the presence speaking, uh, speaking and, and telling his story. Here's what he says, uh, Jubilees 12, verse, uh, text 3. And the Lord God said to me, said to me, the angel, open his mouth, referring to Abraham, open Abraham's mouth and his ears so he might hear and speak with his mouth in the language which is revealed because it ceased from the mouth of all the sons of men from the day of the fall. And I opened his mouth and his ears and his lips and I began to speak with him in Hebrew in the tongue of the creation. And he, be, and he took his father's books, he, Abraham took his father's books, and they were written in Hebrew, and he copied them. And he began studying them thereafter. And I caused him to know everything which he was unable to understand, and he studied them in the six months of rain. So there's a notion here that Hebrew was the primordial language, but had been forgotten. Abraham has these old books from his father that he can't read because he doesn't know the Hebrew. The angel miraculously teaches Hebrew to Abraham. Abraham takes those books, writes them down, and the angel explains things to him. Now elsewhere in Jubilees, we see the patriarchs, we see people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see them observing norms that aren't revealed until the time of Sinai. And one could suspect that what Jubilees really thinks is that Abraham had access to the Torah before it was given. Abraham had access to the Torah before Moses was born. Abraham had access to the Torah before Sinai. And it was able to observe some, not necessarily all, but some of the norms of the uh, Torah, uh, even when it had not yet been given. So this is a further development beyond text one. How did Abraham know those uh, commandments, laws, and teachings? How in the world did he know them? Uh, if they had not yet been given, he knew them because of this miraculous uh, learning of Hebrew and access to these old books that no one had been studying. All right, that's one possibility. When we get to text four, we come to Philo, about 150 uh, or so years later. Uh, Philo uh, was a Jewish philosopher writing in Greek with a good Greek philosophical literary style uh, in Alexandria about the time of the turn of the millennium. Uh, he, uh, some of his works have not, did not survive, and some survive only in Latin and languages you wouldn't normally think that they would survive in, such as Armenian or whatever, and there are those, uh, at least I think, one reason why so few of them survived is that a lot of them were wiped out in that Y0K problem that he lived through in the year zero. Uh, but here's Philo on Abraham, his treatise on Abraham. Uh, for in these men, we're talking here about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, for in these men, we have laws endowed with life and reason. A wonderful expression, laws endowed with life and reason. And Moses extolled them for two reasons. First, he wanted to show that the enacted ordinances, the actual written laws of the Torah, are not inconsistent with nature. And second, that those who wish to live in accordance with the laws as they stand have no difficult task, seeing that the first generations, before any and all of the particular statutes was said in writing, followed the unwritten law with perfect ease. Not the oral law of rabbinic tradition, but the unwritten law that's never been uh, written down and which no teacher teaches. So that one might properly say that the enacted laws, the actual written laws that one finds in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I said that out of order, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, are nothing else than memorials of the life of the ancients, 
preserving to a later generation their actual deeds and words. For they, these ancients, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were not scholars or pupils of others, very different from rabbinic tradition, nor did they learn under teachers what was right to say or do, like my students. Uh, they don't learn what's right to say or do. Uh, they listened to no voice or instruction but their own. They gladly accepted conformity with nature, holding that nature itself was, as indeed it is, the most venerable of statutes, and thus their whole life was one of happy obedience to law. So Philo is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were able to figure out the norms of the Torah by decoding philosophically this thing he calls fusus nature. Whatever it means, however one did that, that, by that means they were able to figure out what the Torah was before the Torah was ever given. And they didn't learn from a teacher, and they didn't learn from books, unlike Jubilees. They didn't learn from either of those. They learned purely from their own observation. Now you might say, well, uh, you can learn a lot of things from nature. I'm not so sure of that. In the Torah, for example, uh, it's forbidden for a Jew to wear a garment which is both uh, wool and linen, combined wool and linen. That's a law in Leviticus, and that's a law in Deuteronomy. How did Philo think the patriarchs were able to figure that out by observing nature? Did they never see a sheep wearing a linen sweater? <laughs> I never have either, but I wouldn't have said, oh, we can't get my wool and linen. Well, it's a long story about Philo, but he thought it was possible to do that. He thought it was possible to do that. Uh, why would you think from nature that one should not eat the meat of a pig? or a lobster. Why would you think that? that? That's in fact what we learn from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Again, but why would one think that based purely on nature? How would one reason to that position? If you could reason that position, why isn't everybody reason to that position? Philo's position is that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were quintessential and ideal philosophers whose minds were so trained and so developed, they could do what we dummies can't do. They could decode nature and learn the Torah directly from nature. Because we're dummies, and we can't do that, we need a, a positive revelation, a written revelation. We need a Torah given on Sinai. But you really theoretically don't need the Torah if you in fact can decode nature. Again, Abraham observing the Torah before it's given. Now let's go to text uh, 5 here on the second page of your handout. Now we're in the Mishnah, a, a law collection of Jewish law, early rabbinic law, put together about the year 200 of the Common Era. So we're about 160 years or so after Philo. Uh, although the traditions may go farther back. And we're dealing with a tractate, uh, Kiddushin, which deals with laws of uh, marriage. Uh, but the last Mishnah in this tractate has a different subject. It's kind of a homiletical peroration, an inspiring uh, crescendo, grand finale or whatever, to the tractate. And it talks about different professions that a Jew could teach his son. A Jewish man could teach his son many professions. Uh, but they all have their weaknesses. But in the opinion of, the, of Kiddushin, the study of Torah... Torah being, in essence, the rabbinic word for Judaism, the uh, study of Torah uh, surpasses all the other professions. So, for example, it says, but the Torah is not so, rather it protects him from all evil in his youth and grants him a future and a hope in his old age. 
Some professions you can't practice when you're old. Some professions you get arthritis, you get whatever, you can't practice them anymore. Uh, not so uh, with uh, the Torah, the study of Torah. And thus it says about our father Abraham, peace be unto him, Abraham was now old, and the Lord had blessed him bakol in all things. Genesis 24.1. Abraham was now old, and the Lord had blessed him in all things. To a rabbinic thinker, to say that Abraham was blessed in all things, but one of the greatest blessings imaginable, namely the Torah, was unknown to him, that's problematic. That's problematic. He's blessed in everything? There was nothing more? Uh, so here's what it says. We thus find that our father Abraham practiced the whole Torah in its entirety, picking up on that word all, bakol, kol Torah kula, all the Torah in its allness, before it had been given. Even as it says, and inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me and, and kept my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my teachings, back to text one. So they use text one to say Abraham observed the entire Torah before it was given. Philo thinks that too. Uh, this uh, Mishnah does not actually say where, where this comes from. How did he learn it? How did he learn the Torah uh, before it was given? And then there's the question of what do you mean we say observed all the Torah before it was given? Uh, there are two positions in, in Jewish tradition on this. One is what I'm calling a maximalist position. It said Abraham observed every category of Jewish law. Another is what I'm calling the minimalist uh, position. It said Abraham meticulously observed all the commandments that could be known in his time, but he didn't observe the ones that could not be known in his time. For a maximalist, look at text 6. Text 6 is by Rashi. Rashi was the great Jewish Bible and Talmud commentator of the 11th century. And here is how he decodes our text 1, Genesis 26, 5. Inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me, he said, when I tested him. Inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me, that means it obeyed me at the binding of Isaac, when we actually have that language, inasmuch as Abraham, as you have obeyed me, etc. All right? Good enough. And kept my charge. What's the charge? Uh, Rashi says, the decrees for, for prevention of wrongdoing regarding the warnings which are in the Torah, such as incest of second degree and rabbinical prohibitions regarding Sabbath observance, rather detailed points of Jewish observance, rather detailed technical points of Jewish observance, Abraham kept. Uh, my commandments. What's it mean, my commandments? What commandments do we see for Abraham? The, those matters which, even if they were not written, would be worthy of being taken as commandments, such as the prohibition on robbery and bloodshed. Those things that anybody whose head is screwed on straight and can think straight and has a conscience would know uh, to practice, to avoid robbing, to avoid needless bloodshed, to avoid uh, uh, killing innocent people if you possibly can. Anybody would know that. That's the sort of commandment they observe. That's what it means by my commandments. But look what he says when you get to my laws. My laws matters that the evil inclination seeks to refute such as the prohibition on eating swine's flesh and on the wearing of fabrics of mixed wool and linen, for which there is no reason, but they are simply the decree of the king and his law for his servants. The evil inclination, the yetzer hara, the inclination within us to disobey God, prompts us to say, wait a minute, these commandments are ridiculous, these are absurd, I ain't going to do it. It's silly. It doesn't make any sense. Why not eat swine's flesh? Why not wear fabrics of mixed wool and linen? Rather than come up with some sort of allegorical explanation, some sort of rationalization, Rashi, relying on rabbinic precedent, says uh, there's no reason for them. They're simply the decree of a king. If you obey the king, if you love the king, if you're a faithful servant of the king, you observe the king's commands, whether you would have thought of them or not, 
whether you uh, agree with them or not, whether they make any sense to you or not. It's, a, it's an act of fidelity and love and service uh, independent of reason. So laws that you could not reason out if your head is screwed on straight, uh, those too, Abraham observed. And my teachings, Toro Tai, the plural of the word Torah, look what he says. This includes the oral Torah, laws given on, to, uh, to Moses on Sinai. This includes not just the written Torah, the Pentateuch, or as a student of mine once mispronounced it, Pentatush, but the, um, the, that, was a, that was not the same student who once talked about the prophet Elijah, the Tushbite. Uh, um, that also happened. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, um, not just the written Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, but the oral Torah, which is to say uh, rabbinic tradition. Abraham is able to observe not just the mosaic revelation of Mount Sinai, but even oral tradition that some rabbinic tradition says go back to Mount Sinai, but it was not written down until thousands of years later. So he's a real maximist. Maximist. To Rashi, Abraham is observing everything. Everything in Jewish law. Okay. His grandson, Rashbam, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, uh, in text 7, is what I'm calling a minimalist. He's much more interested in the plain sense of the scripture. He's trying to differentiate, not oppose, but differentiate between rabbinic uh, traditions of interpretation and the uh, plain sense of the manifest text of the scripture that's before us. So text 7. Here's how he reads Genesis 26, 5. Inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me, concerning the binding of Isaac, as it's written, inasmuch as you have obeyed me. Right? In other words, it looks like it's a reference back to the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, in Genesis 22:18, And kept my charge, such as circumcision, as it is written about it, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You shall keep my charge. He, he kept my charge. You shall keep my covenant. Based on the verb shamar, to keep, he says, well, we're talking about circumcision. Another law that was given to Abraham in his own lifetime. My commandments, such as the commandment about the eight days until the father performs circumcision on the son, as it is written, as God commanded him. My commandments, as God commanded him. Again, not just circumcision, but the circumcision has to be done on the eighth day. My laws and my teachings. Now, Rashbam is aware of this whole tradition which his grandfather Rashi uh, just stated that wants an expansive, maximalist definition of the laws and teachings that Abraham observed. But he, uh, he dissents. He says, according to the essence of its plain sense, shot, the plain sense of what it says, it refers to all the commandments that are generally recognized, such as the laws against robbery, sexual misdeeds, and coveting, which anybody could, could know, and the requirement for legal order and the laws of hospitality. All these were enforced before the Torah was given, but they were then renewed and explicated to Israel, and they made a covenant to practice them. Certain laws in rabbinic tradition, seven basic laws, have been in existence since the time of Adam, six from Adam and a seventh from Noah, that have been in existence. Those are what Abraham is observing. Anyone could know those. You could be in Borneo or wherever uh, and never have heard of the Torah, never have heard of the Bible, but you would know, you ought to know, to observe those norms. You have no excuse for robbery, sexual misdeeds, covenant, etc., etc. That's that's the theory. They were in effect before the Torah was given, but then when the Torah was given, the Jews made a pledge, made a covenantal pledge to observe them, even though they would know them otherwise. Now they were structured as part of the covenantal relationship of the God of Israel and the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Okay, so you notice the Rosh Bam is a minimalist. To him, uh, Abraham is observing only those norms that could be known 
uh, in his own time. You might wonder, how did these rabbinic thinkers who thought he observed later norms, how did, how did he know the later norms? Was it like Jubilees? He got it from some book, some old book. Uh, was it like uh, Philo? He uh, was able to uh, intuit them from his observation of reality, or as it's translated there, nature. Uh, text 8 is one rabbinic attempt at an answer. Uh, it says, no father taught him, nor did he have a master. He didn't have, his, you can't say his father taught him, because in rabbinic tradition his father is an idolater. Uh, and he did not have a master who was the teacher of Abraham. From where did he learn the Torah? Actually, the Holy One, blessed be he, appointed his two kidneys to be like masters, like teachers. And they would gush forth and teach him wisdom. As it is written, here's the proof text, I bless the Lord who has guided me. My kidneys admonish me at night. Uh, I find increasingly uh, it's the case that I'm also receiving uh, instruction from my kidneys at night. Usually the instruction is not as elevated as what, what Abraham got. Usually it's something like, find the bathroom already, right? Uh, but what he thinks is the kidneys, in, in biblical physiology, the kidneys are a source of thought. Okay? The heart is a source of thought and also of uh, feeling, but primarily of thought. Feeling is in the intestines, and thought is in the kidneys. So when the psalmist says, my kidneys admonish me, it's like saying my brain admonish me. There's something inside me that's talking to me, telling me I should be doing this, I should be doing that. Who, what's this inside me that's telling me what to do? I'm not just telling myself. What is this? In those minds, it's as if God implanted, almost like a pacemaker, implanted teachers inside his very body so that he could somehow know what to do through divine revelation because God is the source of this teaching, but at the same time, it's being dispensed uh, like, like, I don't know what, like a, a radium implant or a pacemaker or whatever, dispensing something uh, inside the body, giving some sort of signal inside the body. All right. Uh, this is what I'm calling the conversion of Abraham to Judaism. All these texts are making of Abraham... A, a law-observant Jew, observing God's commandments and laws and statutes, etc., etc. Some are more expansive than others. Rosh Baum is so minimalist that maybe he doesn't think Abraham is really a law-observant Jew. He only observes meticulously and faithfully, at a high qualitative level, the very small quantity of norms that could be known in his own time. All right. Now I want to go to a very different text and begin talking about uh, Abraham as uh, the faithful Christian. Text 9 is from Genesis 15. Uh, God has promised Abraham that he will uh, uh, be the father of a great nation. Uh, but his wife is barren. His wife is infertile. And in some of the traditions in Genesis, she's not just infertile, but she's uh, too old to have a child anyway. So an infertile woman may now be too old to have a child, so she's doubly unlikely. Well, how is he going to become a father of a great nation if he's not the father of anybody? I don't know if you know this. I'm sure there's some uh, geneticists and uh, uh, biochemists in, in the audience, but uh, infertility is hereditary. If your parents didn't have any children, you won't either. How is, how is Abraham... How is Abraham going to have a child? How is he going to be the father of a great nation? Not great, and not, not, he's not the father of anybody. Reminds me of the time the Jew got on the bus and uh, sat down next to a Catholic priest. And this is when the Catholic priests had not yet kicked the habit. They still wore the Roman collar and so forth. And uh, he sat down next to the Catholic priest and he said, pardon me, he's looking at him for a minute. He says, oh, pardon me, sir. He says, uh, you know, your, uh, your shirt is on backwards. And the priest says, no, 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 I, I'm a father. And the Jew says, you yeah, know, I'm a father too. I don't put my shirt on backwards. 
And the, the uh, priest says, no, 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 I, I'm a father to thousands. At which point the Jew says, in that case, leave your shirt the way it is and put your pants on backwards. <laughs> now, Abraham is promised that he's going to be the father to thousands. But he's not the father of anybody. Right? You see the problem? So, um, text 9. Uh, here's what he says. He says to God, since you've granted me no offspring, my steward will be my heir. Whatever this term means, I'm translating a steward. Professor Gar would know better than I what it means. Ben Meshik Beiti. He'll be my heir. Okay? Uh, no, I'm going to leave it to the guy who works in my household because I don't have any children. Then the word of the Lord came to him in reply, that one shall not be your heir. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he added, so shall your offspring be. Now here's the key verse, verse 6 here in text 9. And because, this is the translation here, because he put his trust in the Lord, he reckoned it to his merit. Because he put his trust in the Lord, he, understood here with a capital H, he reckoned it to his merit. All right. Um, well, that's interesting. Here's a man that God is reckoning merit, to whom God is reckoning merit, but all he did was trust God. He hasn't done anything. He's not circumcised. Circumcision, the laws of circumcision don't come until Genesis 17. This is Genesis 15, which some of you with advanced training in mathematics will realize is before. Uh, so, uh, uh, there is a translation of this around already in antiquity. Uh, because he had faith in the Lord, he accounted it to him as righteousness. In which case, if you read it that way, Abraham is becoming righteous because of his faith. Very pr problematic translation issues here, which I'm not going to go into. But, uh, well, to a figure like the Christian Apostle Paul, this is a godsend. Because Paul was arguing for whatever reason that at least Gentile converts, maybe Jews too, but Gentile converts to Christianity, Gentiles who come into the Jesus movement, don't have to keep the Torah. They don't have to keep kosher. They can wear wool, wool and linen together all they want. They don't have to keep the, the Jewish holidays. They don't have to keep the Sabbath. Nothing like that. Why is that? Because those ideas are backwards, silly, primitive, superstitious? No, not at all. That's not what Paul thinks for a minute. It's because righteousness, what you think the observance of the law would provide, has already been provided through faith. Faith reckoned as righteousness. A big idea in the history of Christianity. Very, very influential on Martin Luther, for example. Now again, uh, I'm not getting into the whole question. There are many, many complicated questions of Pauline theology, and, and there's a whole misreading of Paul that I'm not getting into now, but uh, suffice it to say as much as I have. And let's look at text 10, which is Paul, or fairly early in his career, uh, Galatians 3. Maybe written, oh, I don't know, in the early 50s of the Common Era. Oh, stupid Galatians. That probably is pejorative. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I want to learn only this from you. Did you receive the Spirit from the works of the law or from faith in what you've heard? These Galatians, these people living in an area that's now, what, central Turkey? They are, they are saying, well, if we're going to be Christians, we should do what Jesus did and observe Jewish law. We should, become, we should be Jewish. We should be circumcised. We should be observing the Sabbath. We should be doing that. Someone's telling them that. Paul doesn't like that. That's, that's not Paul's gospel for whatever reason. That Paul doesn't like that. So he says to them, well, when you got the Spirit, when you had this uh, autonomic uh, experience of the Spirit, uh, did, you, uh, did you get that from the works of the law or from faith in what you heard? 
Are you so stupid? Again, possibly derogatory. After beginning with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? You had a spirit experience, an autonomic experience, like a charismatic experience, like an experience you might see in a, in a Pentecostalist church, I assume. And uh, uh, given that's the case, now you're going to end with the flesh with all these things about what you're eating and, and, and what you remove on the eighth day. Did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it wasn't vain? Does then the one who supplies the Spirit to you and works mighty deeds among you do so from works of the law or from faith in what you heard? Uh, thus Abraham, here's his proof text, thus Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is simply a Greek translation, whether a correct Greek translation is another question, a Greek translation of text 9, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham had faith in God and that was reckoned to his righteousness. Realize then that as those who have faith were the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham are not the Jews descended through the body, through, through natural propagation, uh, through uh, uh, fertility, but rather the Christians who, uh, who become children of Abraham uh, through faith. Not that it's universal. It's not universal. They become children of Abraham. It's not all of humanity. It's those who have uh, that sort of faith. They become the descendants of Abraham through that faith. Scripture which saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the Gentiles righteous by faith, foretold the good news to Abraham, saying, through you shall all nations be blessed. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed, along with Abraham, who had faith. So here is Abraham. Uh, um, here the key thing about Abraham is not deeds of the Torah. It's the fact that he didn't have deeds of the Torah. He didn't. He, is, he was declared faithful based on his trust in God. Taking that Genesis 15:6 and making it, taking it, I would say, out of its narrow contextual relevance, and then midrashically expanding it to make it a watchword of the whole new religion. You can, in fact, have uh, righteousness and even become a descendant of Abraham. You can even be descended from Abraham because of faith. Independent of righteousness, independent of circumcision. You don't have to undergo circumcision, as his enemies said the Gentiles needed to do if they were going to follow Jesus. And the same point is basically made much later in Paul's career in Romans 4 here in text 11. What then can we say that Abraham found our ancestor according to the flesh? Indeed, if Abraham was justified, was declared righteous on the basis of his works, he has reason to boast, but this was not so in the sight of God. He didn't have any works, he didn't have any deeds. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A worker's wage is credited not as a gift but as something due. But when one does not work, yet believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So faith in Paul's gospel can uh, substitute uh, for the works of the Torah. And not only can, but should. In fact, does what the works of the Torah could never do. It provides uh, righteousness. It even does so as a free gift, as an act of pure grace. Now let me summarize for a moment and then tell you why I'm all wrong. Uh, the summary would be this. Abraham's conversion to Judaism, uh, what I'm calling Abraham's conversion to Judaism, is the uh, appropriation of Abraham into Jewish tradition on the basis of the idea that he observed uh, uh, the laws of the Torah. And with all those internal differences among the different authorities that we looked at, which is only a small segment of those that might have been quoted. Um, so you have the law observant, Torah observant, commandment observant Abraham as uh, the, uh, the Jewish Abraham. The Christian Abraham is the one who has no laws, commandments, or norms that he's necessarily observing, or if he is observing them, they have no effect on his salvation. 
He is credited as righteous, righteous purely on the basis of faith, without the Torah, without circumcision, without any of those performances. So you could say you have a Jewish Abraham and a Christian Abraham. The Jewish Abraham is the Torah observant, and the Christian Abraham is the, uh, is the uh, one who has faith without Torah observance. All right. And now let me tell you why I'm all wrong. H.L. Uh, Mencken has a wonderful uh, uh, comment somewhere. He says, there is always an easy solution to every human problem. Neat, plausible, and wrong. What I just gave you is neat, plausible, and in large measure, in some significant measure, wrong. It's not completely wrong. The texts I uh, gave you, I, I didn't make them up. Uh, but when people say, Judaism says this and Judaism says that, uh, I get very nervous. Usually when I'm driving along listening to the radio and to one of these uh, you know, intellectual or pseudo-intellectual talk shows, and I hear they, they have a panel, they have uh, you know, a, a minister, a priest, and a Jewish rabbi. Always a Jewish rabbi. Uh, it's interesting how often they say a minister, a priest, and a Jewish rabbi. Uh, or a minister, a priest, an imam, and a Jewish rabbi. Uh, and I always want to just pull over, maybe now that I have a cell phone, I'll just call and say, hey, I'll ask you a question. Why do you always discriminate like that? Only have Jewish rabbis on there. But then I realize, in fact, it probably isn't wise to do that because you listen to what some of these rabbis say and you realize, are they Jewish rabbis? Do they know anything about Judaism? When I hear them say, oh, Judaism says this, I shudder. Because if you know anything about the variety and the internal debate within Judaism, to say, well, Judaism says this, that is a little simplistic. When people say about uh, a Christianity, well, the Christian view is X, Y, and Z. You mean all Christians think the same way? I think all Christians think the same way. Jews, all Jews certainly don't think the same way. You know what they say in Israel? Show me two Jews, I'll show you three political parties. Uh, in fact, the story is told about a Jew who was washed up on an island in the South Pacific one time. And uh, he, he swims to this little island, a quarter of an acre, this little rocky outcropping with just a couple of pine trees on it. Or, excuse me, not pine trees, uh, palm trees on it. And, and he's there all alone for 20 years. And uh, he makes himself a little thatched hut out of these... Uh, palm branches, and he fishes, and he eats coconuts, and so forth. And after 20 years, he's rescued. And they, they're just amazed to find him alive there. And they say, well, what, what are these structures? Oh, that's my house. Oh, very nice. He says, what's that? He says, that's, that's my synagogue. He said, what's that other one? Oh, that's the other synagogue I don't go to. <laughs> the, the, the whole idea that all Jews think the same way, all Christians think the same way, you know, it's like, you know, people go, well, Islam, they all think this, they all think that. Really? I mean, there's no internal diversity within Islam? That's surprising. Uh, there's a simple-mindedness uh, that I think Mencken urges us to avoid. So I want to show you why things are a little more complicated than I first indicated. Uh, text 12 is also from the New Testament, but it's not from Paul. It's from the Epistle of James. And here is what it says. Indeed, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Somebody might want to make a faith-works dichotomy. Well, from looking at those texts from Galatians and Romans in Paul, you could see why someone might make a faith-works dichotomy. But James doesn't like it. Maybe Paul, if he saw how far it had gone, might not like it either. It's hard to know. But someone might say that. 
Here's what he says. Demonstrate your faith to me without works, and I will demonstrate my faith to you with, from my works. Yeah, show me faith without works. I can show you my works with faith, but show me, uh, show me your faith without works, he says. You believe that God is one, that you interpret faith as just belief, as just a cognitive act. God is one, you're monotheist. He says, you do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. Even, even, even the devil is a monotheist. Big deal. Uh, verse 20. Do you uh, want proof, you ignoramus? Again, possibly pejorative. Do you want proof, you ignoramus, that faith without works is useless? Think of that for a minute. Faith without works is useless. Imagine Paul. Paul plots to hear that. Faith without, without works is useless? But look at his proof text. Look what he uses as a proof of that. This is amazing. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? You hear that? Justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar. When Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, as painful and difficult and emotionally wrenching as that was, and was willing to do that act out of obedience to God, though it made no sense to him, though he, when he was willing to do that, that in, in the view of the Epistle of James is a, uh, a justification uh, of Abraham uh, uh, through works. Uh, uh, thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And here I have to make a, a little uh, point of clarification uh, that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15. Where Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, the binding of Isaac, is Genesis 22. So how can you say that he was, uh, uh, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness after he, or because he was willing to, to sacrifice his son? You know why? Because there was a Jewish exegetical tradition in the late Second Temple period before Christianity ever came along that said that statement, Abraham put his trust in God and God reckoned it to his merit or whatever, that that was, although it appears in Genesis 15, it was pronounced by God only after the binding of Isaac. If you want to put it in its chronological order, the narrative order and the events, it's only after Genesis 22. You find this in some Jewish sources. That's what James depends on, those Jewish sources. Abraham, the scripture that Abraham believed God and was credited to his righteousness was fulfilled when he did an act, the act being the willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And he was also called the friend of God. See how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by a different route? Now look at verse 26, the last verse in James 2. For just as the body without a spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And that's an amazing statement. You might have thought, and based on what Paul said, you would think, works correspond to the body. Faith corresponds to the spirit. That was Paul's whole point. When you had that autonomic experience, you had that charismatic, Pentecostalist-type experience, you got it through faith. You didn't get it from works. But here, in James, it's the opposite. The body without a spirit is dead. Faith without works is dead. The body corresponds to faith. Faith corresponds to a body, to a dead body. What brings the body alive, what corresponds to the spirit, is works. Works bring the body alive. Faith alone is a corpse. It's the works that animate the corpse and make the corpse alive. Just the opposite of what you might have thought, especially if you reason like Paul. So what do we have in James 2? Well, we have a Christian view that looks more like the Jewish view. It doesn't say, let's be careful here, it doesn't say Abraham observed the whole Torah. It doesn't say Abraham observed any of the Torah. But it did say Abraham's life was one of obedience to the divine norms. 
And the faith is meaningless if there's not obedience to the divine norms. And the divine norms, the obedience, the performances, the actual acts, what's actually practiced, that's what uh, brings uh, faith alive and gives it life and spiritual validity. So in that sense, in that sense, in that, I think, significant sense, James would have to fall on our Jewish side of the equation, but it's a New Testament book, but it's a Christian book. You see, the Christian-Jewish dichotomy is not quite so simple. All right, what about from the Jewish side? Do we have Jewish texts that sound like uh, the uh, Christian, especially the Pauline uh, view? Uh, the, uh, here, look at text 13. Here, I notice that I have 15 before 14, but we'll ignore that. Look at text 13. For the Michilta de Rabbi Ishmael, a rabbinic commentary on parts of Exodus, produced probably early in the third century, but including traditions that go back probably a couple hundred years before that. Early rabbinic comments, midrashic comments on the book of uh, parts of the book of Exodus. Now, some of you, especially those of you with advanced training in mathematics, may know that the directly after the last verse in Exodus 14 is the first verse in Exodus 15. The last verse in Exodus 14 says, they, the Israelites, right after the crossing of the sea, they, the Israelites, had faith in, in uh, uh, the Lord and in his servant Moses. And the first verse in Exodus 15, just continue right on, and there were no chapter divisions in those days, says, Then Moses and all Israel, Moses and the uh, Israelites, sang the following song, the Shiratayam, the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15. Now, the rabbis, I think, are wondering about the following question. No one had ever sung the Song of the Sea before, because nobody had ever crossed the sea before. The Exodus hadn't happened yet. If Moses checked into the, uh, I don't know what, the Ramses Ramada Inn, and opened up the drawer and got the Gideon's Bible, it stopped about Exodus 12 or 13 at that point. They hadn't had the crossing of the sea. No one had ever sung that song before because the song is situational. How then was Moses and all the Israelites able to sing the identical words at the identical moment without any prompting, without any hymnal, very rarely see two Jews in harmony with each other, musically or otherwise. How was all Israel and Moses, how were they able to sing this text spontaneously all at once? And I think the answer is that it was an autonomic experience. Again, so to speak, a charismatic experience that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophetic inspiration, came upon them and taught them those words. It's like speaking in tongues. They said words they never heard before. Nobody ever shown them that song, but they were able to sing it because of an autonomic experience, like speaking in tongues in a Pentecostalist church. Uh, but what caused them to speak in tongues? What is it? How did they? How? What caused the spirit to descend upon them? We're back to Paul's question in Galatians three. What is it that gave you the spirit? What is it? That, how did you arrive at the Spirit? Again, before Sinai. We're talking about Exodus 14 and 15. But they only get to Sinai in Exodus 19. So it wasn't the works of the Torah unless they knew them in advance. How did they do it? And that's what text 13 is trying to answer. Great is faith before him who spoke and the world came into being. Remember, they had faith in 
the Lord and in his servant Moses, and then, then Moses and the Israelites sang the song. Great is faith before him who spoke and the world came, came into being. Before in God's eyes, great is faith. For as a reward for the faith that Israel had in the Lord, the Holy Spirit rested upon them, and they sang the song of the sea. As it is said, they had faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And so in other words, because of that faith, God rewarded them by sending the Holy Spirit and teaching them this song. They utter it prophetically without having to be taught it and without knowing it, uh, without having to rehearse it. And so also you find that our father Abraham inherited both this world and the world to come only as a reward for the faith that he had, as it is said, and because he put his trust in the Lord, he reckoned it to his marriage, Genesis fifteen six again. So what's going on in text 13? What's going on in text 13 is the Holy Spirit coming through faith, very much like Galatians 3. And Abraham, inheriting this world and the world to come, I guess in Christian terms, you translate in a Christian lingo, you'd say something like he was saved. Why? Only as a reward for the faith that he had. And then you use that, fav that favorite proof text of, of uh, uh, Paul or Luther, because he put his trust in the Lord, he reckoned it to his merit. Nothing here about Abraham observing the Torah. Nothing here about Abraham observing the oral Torah, the written Torah, uh, rational laws, non-rational laws, nothing like that. It's faith. Now, that statement on its own seems so Pauline, it seems so much like we, what we saw in Paul in Galatians 3 and 4, that it seems to fall on the Christian side of the divide. But um, how can you say it falls on the Christian side of the divide when it's a rabbinic text commenting on the rabbinic Torah? So again, you can't just generalize and say, well, the, the uh, Jewish Abraham is a Torah-observant person. Not always. Even what it means to say he was Torah-observant, how much he observed is, a, is an internal debate, maximalists versus minimalists. And even here, you see faith in this high estimation that supposedly is the Christian view. All right. Uh, Text 15 is actually after text 14, unlike my handout. I was never strong on, on math. Um, I can tell you why. Um, I, uh, I think this is part of the reason why when I was in first grade, they used to have what they called banking day. And you'd bring money in and give it to the teacher who supposedly would wrote down this little book and it was to teach you how to save. You had a little bank account. I don't know if I ever saw that money again. I suspect the teacher absconded with it. I don't know whatever happened to that. But anyhow, that was the, that was the claim. And um, to keep us amused, I still will never forget the day, to keep us amused, the teacher passed out these, these blocks, these little blocks, little, everybody got a little box. And the idea is you were supposed to make your name. You were supposed to be able to make your name out of these blocks. And the teacher would come around at the end. And I still remember, you know, they come along, I don't know, say some guy's name is, I don't know, Sammy Jones. The teacher's coming around at the end, and Sammy Jones made his name, S-A-M-M-Y-J-O-N-E-S. Very nice, Sammy. And Sammy beams up beatifically the teacher, and teacher beams down beatifically at Sammy. I still remember sitting to the left of me was David Keith. I still remember that. Uh, and uh, the teacher said, oh, now we come to David Keith, D-A-V-I-D-K-E-I-T-H. Now, I'd had a terrible time with this. I was having such a hard time doing it. I was, really, I was sweating bullets. It was terrible. And she comes to me. I'm next. And she says, oh, now we have John Levinson, 5796320404. Uh, she gave me a, a box of numbers, not letters. <laughs> I couldn't believe that I was so dumb. I thought everyone else is doing it. I must know this. It must not be that... 
And ever since then, my math has been a bissel schwach, has not been so great. So that's why you see 15 before 14 here. And uh, if any of you attorneys, I can maybe find that teacher in sewer. Um, all right. Now, uh, I don't uh, claim to know much about the Quran. Uh, uh, remember that the old, the, new, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh of Judaism, and the New Testament of Christianity are not part of Muslim scripture. There are many traditions in Muslim scripture which draw upon these Jewish and Christian sources and retell uh, with a difference the Jewish and Christian stories. Uh, and so you find references to people like uh, Moses and Jesus and Mary and so forth in the Quran, but not necessarily uh, uh, as you would recognize those figures from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Uh, Abraham, Ibrahim is extremely important in, in the Quran. I believe is referred to far more than Moses uh, or Jesus. All right, here we get to uh, from the uh, third surah of the Quran. O followers of the scripture, why do you argue about Abraham? Followers of the scripture mean you Jews and you Christians, both of which existed in, in, in uh, uh, Arabia in the 7th century uh, CE. Why do you argue about Abraham when the Torah and the gospel were not revealed until after him? Why are you arguing about, was he a Jew? Was he a Christian? The Torah and gospel didn't come till after him. Everybody in this room is probably sympathetic to that after being bored by this discussion of mine for the last hour. Um, you've argued about things you knew. Why do you argue about things you do not know? God knows why you do not know. Uh, number 67. Abraham was neither Jewish nor Christian. He was a monotheist submitter. He was Muslim. He was a submitter. He, he submitted. Islam is the name of a spiritual act before it's the name of a religion, per se. He never was an idol worshiper. He never was in, involved in idolatry. He always was a monotheist. The people most worthy of Abraham are those who followed him and this prophet and those who believe. Those who followed him and this prophet and those who believe. God is the Lord and master of the believers. Some followers of the scripture wish to lead you astray, but they only lead themselves astray without perceiving. Oh, followers of the scripture, why do you reject these revelations of God, though you bear witness that this is uh, the, uh, the truth? Uh, okay. Uh, Number page five. O followers of the scripture, why do you confound the truth with the falsehood and conceal the truth knowingly? Some followers of the scripture say, believe in what was sent down to the believers in the morning and reject it in the evening. Maybe someday they will revert. Uh, and do not believe except as those who follow your religion. Say the true guidance is God's guidance. If they claim that they have the same guidance or argue with you about your Lord, say all grace is the Lord's hand. He bestows it on whomever he will. God is bounteous, omniscient. He specifies his mercy from whomever he wills. God possesses unlimited grace. So here he's neither a Jew nor a Christian, but what is he? It's not that they go back to the book of Genesis and read the book of Genesis, which is not part of what becomes the Muslim uh, scripture, the Quran. Uh, rather, uh, he was a monotheist submitter. He engaged in that great spiritual act of Islam, of, of submission uh, to God. Uh, that is the, the, uh, the key thing. Not the, the, the uh, salvation by grace through faith alone and not the observance of the Torah. Or another example, from, this is, really is the text 15 on page 5, uh, this, uh, Quran 2. Second surah of the Quran. Who would forsake the uh, religion of Abraham except one who fools his own soul? We have chosen him in this world, and hereafter he will be with the righteous. When the Lord said to him, Submit, he said, I submit to the Lord of the universe. Moreover, Abraham exhorted his children to do the same, and so did Jacob. Oh, my children, God has pointed out the religion for you. Do not deny and die except as submitters. Do that act of Islam. Do that act of submission. That's how you should die. Okay. So you see here, uh, Abraham absorbed into uh, Islam where he becomes a prophet. 
in the um, in a long chain of prophets, uh, some known from Jewish and Christian tradition, some not known from Jewish and Christian tradition, which consummates and culminates with the uh, final and definitive and uh, unsurpassable prophet, namely Muhammad, through whose mouth the Quran uh, is revealed. Okay, let me come to a conclusion now. The claim that Abraham is the common father of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is not completely false, but it is much more problematic than the people who make it usually realize. For, as I remarked at the outset, we have no access to Abraham except through those traditions. We know no neutral Abraham. And the best, uh, or and I should say, and it, is, and it is not easy to extract some common core from the tradition-specific material we have. All the material we have is tradition-specific. None of it is neutral to the given traditions. But what that core is, if you were to try to ex extract some common core, uh, is uh, itself no neutral, innocent question. Is it observance of the Torah? Is it faith reckoned as righteousness? Or submission to God along the lines of the preaching of Muhammad? When one looks at the rich variety of interpretations within those traditions, all three, however, one can sometimes hear notes that sound more like the characteristic notes of the other tradition. And in attending to those notes, uh, we can at least learn to avoid the overgeneralizations and ham-fisted interpretations that play a central role in interreligious discord. Perhaps if we follow Mencken's admonition and avoid the easy solutions, we shall find more genuine commonality than first meets the eye. But if so, it will be a commonality that comes from a critical respect for traditional interpretation, and not from an attempt to leapfrog over all tradition and interpretation to a putative common founder. Thank you. Are you familiar with uh, the book of Abraham that's supposedly written by the hand of Abraham in Mormon theology? And if I, so, what's your... I know it exists. I'm not familiar with it. Okay. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't speak to it. Okay. It, it does give another explanation of uh, how Abraham received the law, uh -huh. which is uh, the explanation given in it is um, that he received revelation just like Moses did on Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, that would, be a, that would be, what, a fourth possibility. Jubilees with the ancient book, Philo with philosophical decoding of nature, uh, the, uh, the Midrash that says God implanted kidneys within him, a mind within him that had him teach him, or uh, uh, a special revelation. I could imagine all those. And, of course, the reason that we have that diversity is precisely because the text doesn't say, and it invites interpretation. Yes, sir. I thought your book on uh, creation and the persistence of evil is a, is a great book. And I wonder if there any connection in your mind or in your autobiography between that project and this one. Are these just two interesting topics you got interested in? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, thank you very much for the compliment. I, you know, I, I don't like to speak about the great, uh, greatness of my books. I always tell my students, you know, some faculty are very arrogant, and what they do is they assign their books on the syllabi. I expect students to read their books. I tell my students, you don't have to read my books. Just buy them. <laughs> you buy five copies, I'll see that it gets autographed. 
You buy 10 copies, I'll autograph it myself. <laughs> now, uh, the, uh, in answer to the question, is there a connection between this and that? Probably not. Probably if I put my mind to it long enough and got into a midrashic mode of interpretation, I could come up with something. Whether it would hold water, I don't know. Uh, I think in that book also, I'm trying to, first of all, get close to the text, what the text actually says as opposed to impositions, and to avoid the world of overgeneralization. Not all generalization is bad, but overgeneralization. Uh, in that case, the overgeneralization that uh, God, uh, that the ancient sources simply believe God creates the world out of nothing, and, and, uh, and therefore evil is a big problem, whereas I try to argue that, in fact, uh, evil is a big problem, uh, but that the creation stories themselves are, in part, addressing that problem. But I don't think, off the top of my head, that there's a, a strong connection between these two projects. Yes, ma'am. I thought the lecture was fascinating, but when you're talking about generalization, to generalize Judaism as all about action or, or doing and to generalize Christianity about faith and Islam about submission, surely all three of them demand actually a synchronicity between the three, action, faith, and submission. Yeah, I thought I said that. I, mean, I thought I said that exactly what I was against was what the uh, overgeneralization that comes up with a neat answer that can't acknowledge the other notes. In the case of Christianity, there are versions of Christianity that uh, have problems with law, deeds, uh, rituals, uh, practice. That there, are, there are some forms of Christianity that do have a radical grace theology that says grace is received through faith alone and all salvation is by grace alone received through faith independent of actions. And sometimes that even gets to the point of a full-fledged, uh, in some forms of Christianity, a full-fledged uh, predetermination. Some people are uh, predetermined, predestined uh, to, to go to heaven or hell before they're even so much as conceived. There are versions like this. I wouldn't want to say the synchronicity or synergism of them is, is universally the case through all these uh, traditions, but uh, certainly on balance all three of them have elements of faith and elements of uh, submission and elements of, of, uh, of uh, the importance of deeds and works. I would certainly agree with that. Right. Yes, ma'am. Good evening. My name is Diana, and I apologize for my ignorance ahead of time. But have you heard, uh, I use the opportunity, you as a, a scholar, have you heard of, of Melchizedek as being uh, Abraham's teacher? And from which re religious background would that come then? Uh, Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is the priest king of the town of Salem, which generally is identified with Jerusalem. And uh, he's involved in this tithing that Abraham does after his war that I mentioned in Genesis 14. So uh, uh, the note, there is in the uh, letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament a kind of a contrast of Melchizedek and Abraham and a tendency to make Melchizedek a type of Christ in that particular, that particular text, even more than Abraham, a type of Christ. Uh, Melchizedek as the teacher of Abraham, I suspect you'll see that somewhere in Christian tradition. Offhand, I'm not thinking of where. Uh, teacher, per se, I'm not thinking of, of where. But there is a, a notion of, uh, in rabbinic literature, that there was a yeshiva, there was a house of rabbinic learning, uh, by these two post-Noah figures, uh, Shem and Ever, 
and uh, that various patriarchal figures, and certainly Isaac, went to that yeshiva, to that house of learning, to learn. And there's an identification of Shem, the figure Shem there, with Melchizedek. So maybe you could say Melchizedek, if I'm remembering this correctly, could be a teacher of Isaac. That he was a teacher of Abraham, I'm not remembering a source for that. So I just, I have to plead the ignorance. It's an interesting, interesting question. Yes, please. Hi, Professor Loves, and thank you for coming to speak um, for UCSB. Um, my question, I guess, was about um, your talk was entitled The Conversion of Abraham to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I was born here, I was raised Muslim, mm -hmm. and I taught Sunday school for a number of years. And my understanding of the difference between Judaism and Islam on the issue of Abraham was that um, Judaism, Jews had a different belief about who Abraham's legitimate offspring was, whether mm -hmm. it was the child of Sarah or the child of Rahab. Mm -hmm. But my question to you was sort of this. Of Hagar, you mean? Oh, or sorry, excuse me, of Hagar. Right. Sorry, right. Uh, of Hagar. Um, I suppose, and like, forgive my ignorance, it might just be because I was raised here and I don't have a complete understanding of society. I was, ra I was raised here, too. I'm probably even more ignorant. But, yeah. <laughs> In fact, okay. I've lived here longer than you, so I'm, I'm sure I'm more ignorant. So the primary difference in people's conception and understanding of Abraham mm -hmm. is who his legitimate offspring was. Mm -hmm. Remind me again why that makes me want to hate your people. Um, so I don't know. You've got to come up with your I mean, reasons honestly, for hating. I like, is there a legitimate reason? Is there some sort of differentiation in lineage that makes me believe different fundamental aspects of things than you do? Because last time I checked, I'm not allowed to eat pork. I'm supposed to abide by certain laws that are right. very similar to kosher laws. Right. I'm supposed to abide by right. certain principles of behavior in my dealing with other people. Right. For all I can understand, all my life, all I've understood is that I'm very, very close to the Jewish belief system mm -hmm. and that my closest friends all my life have always been have always been Jewish and not because it's like I purposely seek out Jewish people but as a Muslim our belief system is so fundamentally tied to that same belief system that growing up in Sacramento the majority of people that had sharing belief systems as me were not Muslim because there were not Muslim people there they were right. Jewish people right okay good question very a very learned uh, good question uh, in Jewish tradition including in the Hebrew Bible there's a tendency to talk about a triad, three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You often find in the Quran, Abraham, Ishmael, Ismail, Abraham, Ishmael, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Ishmael in the book of Genesis, it's hard to say how to put this. He's not disowned. The way I would put it is this. Ishmael is the son of, of Abraham by the, uh, through a kind of surrogate motherhood, uh, brought about by the Egyptian slave Hagar. This is what you have in the book of Genesis. He, um, uh, when the son by the promise, the son is finally born to Sarah when she's 90 years old, according to Genesis 17. And so there is the promised son. You don't need to have the surrogate motherhood. What does this do with Ishmael? Uh, the, the solution, the best way I put the solution is to say this. The covenant falls, the uh, covenant and the promise fall to Isaac, but the promise also falls to Ishmael. Ishmael will also be a great nation. Ishmael will be the father of a 12-tribe league in Genesis uh, 17. So uh, Ishmael is not disowned, but, the, but the, uh, the lineage is through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Now, there is even in Muslim tradition some uh, interesting interaction between uh, Ishmael and uh, Isaac. For example, uh, 
Many people don't know this, but uh, you know, in, in the Quran you have the story of the binding of the sun. But the sun is not, I think it's the 37th surah. But if I'm not mistaken, I'm, if I'm, here I know I'm not mistaken, uh, the, uh, the sun is not named. Early Muslim exegetes had a, um, a, an argument. Uh, was, uh, was the son Isaac, in which, and in those, did the binding take place in Palestine, Syria, in Syria we'll say, and the uh, son was Isaac, or did it take place in Arabia and the son was Ishmael? I, I find in my own teaching many uh, contemporary Muslims don't know that. They don't know that for a couple centuries in early Islamic Quranic exegesis, they didn't realize that there were those who thought it was Isaac, which is what the Hebrew Bible says, and those who thought it was Ishmael, which is not what the Hebrew uh, Bible says. Sir? Yes. With all due respect, yeah. and I realize that you're a very illustrious professor. That's not true. Yeah. Who cares? What difference does that make? Oh, well, anyone, who cares? Millions of people who follow... Well, I mean, what, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if, mm -hmm. you know, many hundreds of years ago, someone was born to a different son? Who cares if he was illegitimate? Who cares well, if he wasn't? Right. What difference does that right. make? I.